As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. But now for today's show. This is the 13th episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. And our focus here is on his move to Cambridge. Alistair, we're carrying on looking at this wonderful book of yours, C.S. Lewis, A Life. And um, we're getting towards the end of this book now and the end of Lewis's life. Um, So what was C.S. Lewis's experience of Oxford like in the post-war post Narnia Chronicles, well, I suppose particularly Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe years. What was it like for him um, towards the end of his time at Oxford? It was difficult for him. I think we need to understand that uh, there were a lot of things going on which really, in effect, put Lewis under a lot of pressure and made him feel very, very low. Let me just mention some of them. One very obvious one, of course, is that after the Second World War, there was a boom in student numbers. And that was very good news for Oxford University, but meant that Lewis found himself inundated with students he had to teach. And that meant actually he found himself exhausted by this new intake of students. Of course, at the same time, um, Mrs. Moore was beginning to develop dementia. Warney, his brother, was developing um, alcoholism and, and went um, went on drinking binges, sometimes to Ireland. And Lewis was, in effect, in despair about this. And thirdly, I think this is, again, a very important point, Lewis's academic peers in Oxford felt he wasn't delivering what was expected of an academic. And in effect, Lewis was being passed over for senior appointments at Oxford, which he might otherwise expect to have had. So I think, basically, Lewis is beginning to realise he didn't fit all that well in Oxford. And the question was, what on earth could he do about it? So he did eventually end up being offered a job at Cambridge University, but that wasn't completely straightforward, was it? It was not straightforward. Uh, It it was very, very interesting. Um, Cambridge University, um, obviously, you know, like Oxford, is very, very prestigious. And they decided they were going to um, establish a new professorship in English. Um, And the question was, who would they appoint to this position? And on the board of electors for this um, chair, um, as an external representative, was none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien was absolutely clear that the job description fitted Lewis perfectly. 
And so they discussed a whole range of possible candidates, and in the end, Cambridge University decided the obvious person is Lewis. So they wrote to Lewis um, in the early 1950s saying, we would very much like you to accept this new chair in English at Cambridge University. We think uh, you will bring great distinction to this role. Please come. And Lewis wrote back a day later saying, no, thank you. And I think Tolkien was really quite upset about this. He was upset about this for two reasons. Number one, Lewis had written back without discussing this with him. You know, he had written back within a day. And in, in English culture at the time, that would have been seen as curt, as rude. It meant that you were not giving this serious consideration. You normally wait a week or so and then write back. And the other thing was just Tolkien felt that Lewis couldn't stay at Oxford because he burnt all his bridges. He had to move somewhere else and Cambridge was obviously a place in which Lewis could start all over again without the kind of history which had made life so difficult for him in Oxford. So Cambridge and actually were very, very sorry that Lewis wouldn't take up this chair, so they went to number two on this list. This was a Helen Gardner, a very able um, English, English scholar, and um, she uh, clearly would have been a very good choice for this position. But then, to every surprise, she said no. And there's a story there, because Helen Gardner said no because she was aware of who Cambridge wanted to be the new incumbent of this position, namely Lewis, and she agreed that Lewis would be the ideal occupant. So, in effect, there were some ferocious conversations went on. First of all, Tolkien said to Lewis, you've got to go to Cambridge. And Lewis didn't want to because he said, look, I like Oxford. I want to stay in Oxford. And Tolkien confirmed with the Vice-Chancellor at Cambridge that Lewis would be able to stay stay living in Oxford, but go to Cambridge and live in a college during the week and then go back to Oxford the weekends and stay in Oxford during vacations. And gradually, Lewis realised this will be a good job. And so eventually, the uh, Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge will persuade Lewis to say yes. And the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge then was a fellow of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and said, look, my college will be very pleased to have you. So, in effect, he went from Magdalen College, Oxford, to Magdalen College, Cambridge. The only difference is a final E at the end of the word. And actually, I would say that Cambridge did mark a new start from Kate for Lewis and was a very happy final phase of his life. So let's hear a little bit more about that. What was Cambridge like for Lewis? Was it the fresh start that he needed? It was a fresh start for him. Uh, and in fact, when I was writing my biography, I was reading Lewis's letters of his time very, very cl closely. And they exude with excitement. They're, they're kind of happy. Lewis is clearly in a place in which he can rediscover himself, where he doesn't have to worry about what anybody thinks about him, because all his enemies are in Oxford, not in Cambridge. Yes. And so I think, if I can put it very simply, Lewis reinvents himself in Cambridge. And he reinvents himself, actually, in a very important way. In Oxford, he tended to write apologetic works for people outside the church. In Cambridge, he says, look, I'm done trying to persuade people to become Christians. I now want to write to help those who are Christians grow in their faith. So it's still a kind of apologetics, but it's a different sort of apologetics in that Lewis is now trying to help Christians deal with their doubts and grow rather than engage a popular audience beyond the church. 
So it's a very significant period in Lewis's life. And again, I think it's just so significant that it was a happy time in that life. So what were some of those key texts that Lewis began to write in Cambridge? Well, I think some of them stand out. I would personally point to The Four Loves as being one of the most important works of this period because it, although I think it obviously summarizes key themes that you observe, for example, in Lewis's um, engagement with fellow inklings, the importance of friendship. You talk about things you really like, you really enjoy, you kind of help each other write. That's really important. But actually, that book is a very sophisticated interpretation of friendship. And for a lot of people, it's a really um, valuable essay in how you make friends and keep them and what friends do with each other. But also, of course, he wrote Reflections on the Psalms, which again is a late work, but a very helpful one. And in fact, one of the few books that Lewis wrote which actually explicitly engage with biblical texts. So again, a new type of apologetic in a new situation. Now, one of the key things that happened during Lewis's Cambridge years was his relationship with Joy Davidman. But before we talk about this, because I feel like we've got quite a lot to say on that, um, while we're on the topic of important women in Lewis's life, who was Ruth Pitter and what impact did that have um, on Lewis's life? Well, Ruth Pitter was a poet. Um, and um, well regarded, I have to say, at the time. And she was someone whose faith journey was actually significantly influenced by Lewis. And they, they, they would correspond with each other. And it was clear to a lot of people that um, once Mrs. Moore died, um, that Lewis was free, if he wanted to, to marry. Lewis seems to have regarded Mrs. Moore almost as a kind of wife, so that while she was alive, he would not be looking at any other woman. When Ms. Moore died, um, Lewis felt he was free to begin to look, and Ruth Pitter was seen by many as a potential partner for Lewis. Nothing came of it, but she would have, in my view, been a very good partner because, in effect, she was a very able writer, and the two of them would have sparked each other off, but it never happened. Do we know why nothing ever happened? Um, we don't really. There's, there's no obvious analysis in any of Lewis's writings about um, his thoughts on this matter. It just seemed to be that um, they were people who were pursuing parallel lives and didn't really intersect with each other enough um, to make this, uh, make this possibility of a relationship serious. Well, let's talk about Joy Davidman. Um, who was she and how did Lewis initially come into contact with her? Well, Basically, Joy Davidman had read some things by Lewis and was quite interested in him. She was an American. Um, she grew up in the States during a very um, tempestuous period in American culture. She flirted with um, Marxism. She was uh, a nihilist in some ways. And then began to read C.S. Lewis in America and felt this guy really had things to say that uh, began to help her reorientate and reestablish her life. So if you like... She was a Lewis fan, uh, and she moved to Oxford with her two sons. Um, her relationship with her husband in America, kind of way, going, going through a very rocky time, and kind of way decamped to um, Oxford, where she met C.S. Lewis. How did Davidman help Lewis's writing? Well, Davidman was a writer herself. I think that's a very important point to begin with, and she had experience of working with editors, 
and knew, in effect, the kind of things that a literary editor would do in order to um, to help a work progress, or indeed, at some point, to begin. You know, you have lots of ideas. How do you actually knock that into a book when you need someone to talk it through with you? And I, I would say that this is a role that Joy Davidman played. And I think if I had to single out one of Lewis's works where this was particularly obvious, I would say it's Till They Have Faces. Lewis had always wanted to write a book dealing with um, this particular Greek myth, Psyche, and um, couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, and so he and Joy Davidman had this very interesting discussion about, which she says, we kicked a few ideas around. And actually, however this happened, Lewis suddenly saw how this book might be made to work and went off and began to jot down some notes and actually progressed from that point onwards. And that actually is quite an important role because even the most imaginative writers can come across periods of block where you just can't see how to progress something. You can see there's an idea there. You can't see how to develop it. And George Davidman's editorial background seems to have helped Lewis to move on with that particular project. Now, Lewis and David Mann got married under very strange circumstances. I mean, do you think this was purely a marriage of convenience? And if so, why did Lewis agree to it, do you think? There's an awful lot about this marriage that we just don't understand. And I think we have to say immediately that Lewis does appear to have been a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, how shall I put this? Uh, he would not tell his friends about what was going on. And some of the things he told his friends about what was going on were not actually true. So I think we have to be careful here. Uh, Lewis, I would say, was furtive about this relationship. Um, uh, he, he really did not disclose this to his friends. Above all, J.R.R. Tolkien. I think Tolkien felt very, very badly wounded by that. But I think basically what we, we understand about this relationship is that Joy Davidman and her sons... Um, found themselves um, under threat of being deported from England because their per permission to, ex to, ex to reside in England was about to run out. That is true. I've seen the document, in effect, saying, you know, your, your leave to stay in England will end at this date. And Lewis seems to have thought that um, by arranging a civil marriage, that would allow Joy Davidman and her two sons to remain in England. Um, and all that does make some sense. And certainly there was a civil marriage in Oxford at which only two of Lewis's friends attended in witness, as witnesses, um, his doctor and um, Austin Farrer, and nobody else knew about it. So I think a lot of Lewis's friends were baffled by this. Why is he being so secretive about this? And the explanation that he was, in fact, enabling uh, George Irvin to stay in the UK is plausible, except... It's not plausible enough. Um, and I think that there's this whole question about whether Lewis's relationship with Joy Davidman was more than just that of an older writer wanting to help a younger writer. And we really don't want to go into that in any detail. But certainly it was very, very puzzling to his friends. When they found out, most of them were very hostile to it, feeling that, in effect, and Joy Davidman was in some way exploiting or manipulating Lewis. Um, my own view is that Lewis was a was a grown up person, or to have been able to um, work out what was happening. But his his friends were really quite uneasy about this relationship. So why did he keep it a secret from all of his friends? 
That's a question his friends asked. They, they could see no reason for Lewis to um, conceal this unless he was anxious about what they would have to say about it. And that may actually be part of the uh, issue. That In effect, I think Lewis knew his friends would say this is inappropriate, they're unwise, and in effect, you know, what are you thinking of? Um, we, don't, we just don't know. Um, what I would say, though, is although my own reflections on this um, kind of way suggest that George Edmund was in some way exploiting Lewis, I have to say that there's no doubt Lewis came to fall in love with her. I think we need to allow that to counterbalance any unease we could have about this relationship. Now, Joyce Davidman wasn't the only female writer that um, that Lewis was supporting financially, was he? Why, why was he doing that, supporting young women financially? Well, Lewis made money from his novels and felt that part of his obligation was to support others who were, in effect, in similar positions. And certainly, um, I need to say that uh, Lewis uh, was quite generous with people um, and that this was just part of the way he was. He was also quite naive. He didn't understand the British tax laws. And so, uh, for example, he, he would um, give a talk to the BBC and they would, they would say, we're going to pay you this amount. He said, no, no, don't give it to me. Give it to this person who deserves it more than I do. But, of course, for income tax purposes, this was Lewis's income. He had to pay tax on it, even though he'd asked for it to be assigned to somebody else. And at that time in Britain, 95% of um, your uh, income was paid as tax. So Lewis did find himself in financial problems, really, because he didn't quite understand the tax situation. But Lewis was generous, feeling that his own financial success to his writing was a means by which he could encourage others who he believed had talent in this direction. Now, Joy Davidman's cancer diagnosis seems to have completely transformed Lewis's attitude towards her and, and their relationship. What happened here, do you think? It's very hard to know, but there's a very interesting letter from Lewis to another of his women friends, Dorothy L. Sayers, in which he, he just says that um, realising somebody is dying changes everything. And, and the point he's trying to make is that you in effect, um, realise you may not have much time left with them. What I need to understand here is that Lewis naturally played the role of a carer. He had an alcoholic brother. While Mrs Moore was alive, she, she died in 1950, um, basically he had to look after her. So he was quite used to looking after people who really were in some difficulty. Uh, and so it was quite natural for him to switch into the role of carer for Joy Davidman. So that seemed to happen really quite naturally. And why was it important to Lewis that they had a Christian marriage at this time, even though they'd obviously already been legally married in a civil ceremony earlier? Well, Lewis was very clear that um, they'd had this um, civil marriage, which in effect was all that was needed for Joy Davidman to stay in England. And Lewis scholars disagree about this, but my hunch is that Lewis fell in love with Joy Davidman and actually felt now he really wanted to have a proper religious marriage service. So Lewis tried to work out how on earth he could do this because um, this was not really legal in terms of um, the Church of England at the time because if you have a civil marriage, then you are married. So there's no need for a religious ceremony to follow it. However, 
Lewis had taught many people during his time at Oxford, and one of them was a man called Peter Bide. Um, and actually, I knew Peter Bide. He taught me theology at Oxford in the 1970s. So I, we, he and I had a, lots of wonderful talks about C.S. Lewis, I have to say. But Peter Bide was then um, working as a parish priest down in the south of England, and um, basically Lewis asked Peter Bide if he would come and, in effect, lay hands on George Davidman, because he had the reputation as someone who was a very good pastor who actually had a healing ministry as well. And when Bide came to Oxford to do this, he was very happy to lay his hands on George Davidman. Lewis asked him if he would mind marrying them as well. And Peter Bide really was put in a very, very difficult position, but in the end agreed to do so. And uh, uh, I think he, in the end he felt this was the right thing to do, even though he was very uneasy about it. There was a difficulty as well because Joy Davidman was a divorcee as well. There were difficulties all over the place. And um, that's one of the reasons why I think this was a, a late decision which had not been fully thought through, except Lewis knew this was the right thing to do in terms of his own feelings towards Joy Davidman and also the fact that her cancer was really now uh, progressing quite significantly. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the rest of Joy and Lewis's relationship and then tragically her death and the kind of impact that that had on Lewis in a further episode. But I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Alistair, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash cslewisbook and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash cslewisbook. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm.